We are, as we just sang, looking at Psalm 73 this morning, and this is our last psalm for our summer series, which has been looking at psalms as a way to learn more how to pray. And, and this psalm in particular, I think, and I mentioned last week, is one of my favorite, because you really get a sense of who the author is, or what, at least what their struggle is. Maybe not their biographical information, but what is Asaph really dealing with? And it I think it hits close to home. So we are going to stand and read Psalm 73. Uh, Actually, I'm sorry, you can stay seated. We're going to to stay seated. You have a lot of standing you do already. I'm worried about your your legs. Stay seated. I'm going to read Psalm 73. Please follow along with me in your Bible, and then we will jump in. Some of these words might sound familiar, as Doug mentioned, because he just sang the song, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So far, that sounds really negative, doesn't it? Listen, this is where if you started to fade off, and your mind started wondering to let's get this over with, what's going on for lunch. Listen to the end of this passage. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, 
What a rich reminder that there is nothing in heaven besides you and nothing on earth that compares to you. Yet we, like this psalm writer, wander. In fact, I I would say it's the medium of our heart. We are envious. We are double-minded. And we need your Spirit to show us your goodness this morning. To remind us that you are with us always. In your name we pray. Amen. So, as we go through these psalms, we're doing two things. And so, in, in, with this psalm specifically, we're doing two things. We want to understand it, what's happening in Psalm 73. But we're also wanting to learn how to pray like this. What I'm the most fascinated by in this psalm is this is a, an honest prayer. This is Asaph, who was a chief priest, a chief minister of the people. We see that in First Chronicles. Saying he struggles with envy. And in his description of his struggle, he bears his soul. And so, I think this is really a psalm of repentance. And most of us, if I ask you, what would be the number one psalm of repentance you would think of? You would think of maybe Psalm 51, right? Where David has committed a sin of adultery. He's had the husband Uriah the Hittite murdered. And that is a great psalm of repentance. But most of us would probably not say we've murdered anyone, right? Most of us. So, what makes this psalm, I think, pop is everyone in this room right now deals with envy. I'm not saying you're dealing with envy right now, but probably today you have. And it's definitely a medium of your heart. Do you believe me? If I have to convince you, I'm going to try. But it's true. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the nature of envy, uh, the distortion of envy, and the cure for envy which is the Gospel. So, the nature of envy. We are envious people. And we find uh, this psalmist being very honest. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what's amazing about his envy is this dual nature of it, that he is able to see the foolishness of the people he's envious of. And he he struggles with the fact that he says they have no pains until death, right? Their eye, their their bodies are fat and sleek, which at that time must have been really good. You know, now we would call that a cut down, right? Um, anyway, no one's following along, right? Everyone's like, "What?" Thank you, Marsha Carnes. You followed. You just kind of held it back. Thank you, Marsha. We we are envious people. Um, what is envy? Envy is thinking there's something you don't have that you need to be complete. Would that be a fair definition? And of course, if you're a Christian, you know to be complete, you need a relationship with God. You are found in Christ, right? So when we are envious, what are we doing? We are basically saying, that's great, sort of, right? That, would be, that, that, that reality that I'm a Christian is, is sort of helpful, but there's still this other thing that's missing. And what makes it so insidious is we know that it isn't really that helpful, right? We actually know if we had the thing we think we needed, it wouldn't meet our needs. And yet we still think we need it, right? And that's what we find again in this passage where Asaph is being honest. He says, again, they have no pains until death. Uh, they have no trouble um, that I have. You know, I'm stricken. The rest of mankind is stricken. And so he's created in his mind 
this group of people that have something that he needs to have. Um, I think for me, you know, for all of us, envy is, is very hard to detect because it may not follow the norms that you think it is. Where, where do you think you're envious? What part of your life do you think? So you go, okay, we all want a nicer home, right? But not everybody, right? Not everyone. Maybe some people are, no, I'm happy with my house. Or maybe it's you want to be married because you're not married. Or maybe you wish your spouse were different. There's all these places to be envious. But what you'll find is when you trace where your envy lies, it's, it's the, it points to the idols of your heart, the most significant thing about you. For Asaph, as a leader of a congregation, what would be the most important thing? That people think what he said was important. Right? That's what preachers want, right? Look at verse 10. Here's where his envy really comes to light. Therefore, his people turn back to them. God's people are turning to these arrogant ones. And, he, and they find no fault in them. In other words, he's envious, not of their lifestyle necessarily, or of all the things they're doing, but he's envious of the fact that people are listening to them. That, and that strikes at the heart of his envy. So where, where are you envious? Um, I was thinking about illustrating, it's hard to illustrate envy because it's everywhere. But I'm going to describe an area in my life where it came up repeatedly. And it, it, I say it past tense because I'm no longer in RUF. But maybe in, Shane's not here and Sherry doesn't like being called out in sermons. But training. RUF campus minister training. It's the greatest thing RUF does. Okay, We love it. right? All the campus ministers descend on some poor city and, and there we are. We all look like hipsters and act like we are the cat's meow or the cats. That's where that came from. Anyway, um, and, and, and you get together. But every time you do that, there's this other part of you that goes, I'm both excited about showing up to training to see what the guys are doing. Um, but there's this fear. What is the fear? What would you imagine would be the campus minister's fear in this? You show up and it's like, how's your support account? Oh, it's a little low. How many people are coming to your group? Yeah, I don't have a ton. You know, what are you preaching? It's not that great. You, you, you fear being exposed. You want to show up and have everybody go, shh, there's Ryan. You know? But that's not what happens. And what makes that group so amazing for me was that you would sit down in some breakout group and some campus minister who you thought had it together would get up and do what? He confessed. Guess what? I hate coming to training too. I'm just as much worried about what you think of me as, as you are of this and me of you and all that. And you all sort of have this weird duality in which you realize, I want to be like you, but I'm hearing you tell me you don't have it together either. And it's just, it, it exposes the heart of envy. We really are after something we can't get our hands around. Isn't that the nature of envy? And what makes it so insidious is the distortion of it. So I want to move into this idea of distortion because envy is not, you're not envious of something that if you had, you really think it would help you. By its very nature, you logically know it wouldn't help you. It wouldn't actually satisfy you. Um, so we see this in, in, with Asaph. I've been perplexed. I told you I love this psalm. And, and I used to wonder, is this a real group of people he's describing? Is there this group of people called the arrogant ones? The wicked. What does that mean? Um, and I would say, one, one, one commentator would say, well, yes, because it's post-exile and there were other nations that had come in. 
and very, very likely it was sort of powerful, popular, upper-class type people who didn't follow Yahweh. Okay. The other commentators would say, maybe, maybe not, that may not matter. Because for this to become a psalm, and for you and I to understand it clearly, we don't really have to know who those people were exactly. And Asaph certainly didn't feel the need to explain in detail who they were. He just explained their characteristics, and that's what resonated. And I want to show you the distortion. <clears throat> First of all, it's amazing to me that he's envious. He doesn't say, I was envious of awesome people. I was, I was uh, envious of their prosperity. He's right off the bat explaining they're arrogant and they're wicked, which means from his perception they weren't following God. Okay, That's what wicked means. Um, but he says they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Do you hear the distortion in that? There's no pain for them until what? Until they croak. That's awful. Like That's not good news. Hey, you've got it all together, bro, until you just fall over dead. But for him, he was, he was convinced that in that span of time, whether it was a month, a week, a year, whatever, they had it going on. And so envy distorts the beauty of even a short span of time, doesn't it? They have no troubles uh, like the rest of mankind. That can't be true. I mean, that just cannot be true. And what I began to realize as I've meditated on this is that envy creates this fake, class of people that don't exist, right? Uh, let's pretend you walk into a situation, maybe you walk into a, a cocktail party, I don't know, and, you, and you're in there and you see somebody and you're jealous. They, everyone's talking to that person. They, they're a little bit better looking, a little bit fitter. You assume they have more money, whatever, you're jealous. And then someone goes, oh, do you know who that is? That's so-and-so, and they have like three weeks to live. Okay, you don't go, you don't say to yourself, how foolish I was to envy them, do you? You just turn to someone else to envy. I mean, right? They just slip into the I feel sorry for that person category. They're gone. And and yet your 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 core group of, of people to envy just changes. Right? It's everyone who has something better than you. And that's what envy does. It's completely a distortion. It says their eyes swell through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. I mean, he's at one and the same time realizing they don't have it all, but nonetheless, everyone turns to them. And, and then he goes on to say, verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. I mean, is that true? Or is what he exposing the fact that there's a distortion going on? And the first distortion is the distortion about the future. Okay, When he says they have no pain until death, notice what happens later in the psalm when he comes to his senses. When he says, verse 17, then I discerned their end. In other words, he's not, I don't think Asaph is saying, aha, that guy's going to die and I'm glad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I realized the fruit of their lifestyle. It became clear to me. I was in a distortion where I thought their lifestyle was great until they die. Now I realize their lifestyle is going to lead to a separation from their maker. It's going to lead to an eternity apart from God. He's becoming awake. So there's a distortion about the 
future when you are envying people. And isn't this what we do in Christianity? How don't we most like don't most Christians, I think we do this unfortunately. We have our future set with Jesus. We got that, right? Going to heaven when we die. We have that. Now, let's live life today, and we kind of scoot that over there, and we live as if that's not a reality now. It doesn't really feed into what we do every day. I mean, come on, we don't we don't murder, you know, we don't do really bad things. But most of the time we don't do those bad things because it doesn't get us what we want. But we've sort of we've sort of separated the future and our longing to be with God from the present reality. And we really do live in an envious relationship to other people. And the way that plays out is the jury of your peers is what you measure yourself by. It's how you evaluate how you're doing. And that's the heart of envy. Envy is wanting to look good in front of other people. Right? Envy, that's all it is. It's, it's I want to have enough things here to make you think I'm something special. Um, I would talk to a, this, I came with this illustration I thought was so brilliant, and then I realized C.S. Lewis used it, and I'd probably read his. So it wasn't mine. But here was the idea I came up with. I was talking to a student one day. I said, look, if you, he didn't have a car or something. I said, if you've got a brand new, let's say, a Toyota Camry, right? Middle of the road, not the, didn't have the leather, but it's pretty nice. And it's got maybe six cylinder, four, I don't care. Just, you got it. You pick it. And you woke up and you walk out and that's in your driveway and you know it's yours. It's legal. No one stole it. Okay, it's yours. Would you all be excited to have a free car? Everybody in this room. I mean, a free car. Not Matthew, but everybody else. Then you look down the street. What do you see in every driveway? Same car. Everyone got one that way, and everyone got one that way, and you get in your car and you have to work. Everybody on the road has your car. All of a sudden, the luster's dropped a little bit, right? Why? Because we don't want a new car. We want a better car. We want a better car than you drive, right? I want a house that looks a little bit better than your house. I want a physique that looks a little bit better than yours. Or a brain that's a little smarter than yours. I, that is the heart of envy, pride. And it's a distortion. Because all it is, is a measurement against the jury of our peers. And it loses sight of the future. It loses sight of the Father, right? Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's talking to God. He's like, I was a brute beast. I was like a donkey or some kind of an animal who stood there and had no idea you even existed four feet away from me. I was completely and utterly turned against you. That is what envy is. You cannot be envious and at the same time be loving and resting in Christ. Right? And your Father through Christ. And we see that, of course, at verse 2. But as for me, so he's just said, truly God is good to Israel, which we're going to talk about in a moment, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost uh, stumbled, my steps had almost slipped. Now, when you read the Psalms, and we're going to always juxtapose what we're talking about with just your own private reading devotion, you need to chew on that kind of thing. Like, have you ever stumbled? You don't feel normal when you stumble. If you're walking down the hall and you're... Don't you kind of like look around like, did that just happen? 
how could a perfectly normal human stumble? It feels completely ridiculous. And if you've ever been slipping and you can't get your grasp on the side of the mountain or wherever you're on, your whole, it's like your whole equilibrium is gone. And what he is saying is, when I was turned against God, I had nothing. The very thing I needed to stand on was completely missing. And when we are envious, that's exactly where we are. We are completely distorting reality. Do you see that connection? Is that how you see envy? So, here you are. We're looking at the nature of envy. And what I want us to think about as we move through this passage, are you aware, first of all, of the ways you envy? I mean, you have to actually take this type of passage, meditate on it, and go, what am I envious of? And here's a great way to figure that out. What do you feel like you need to complete you? Right? Every one of us has a, you start with some real basic things, you know, and you, and you fill it in, right? And I think it would be helpful to begin to think through that list and that idea. But then you want to go a little bit deeper, right? How is that a distortion? Like, why would that thing, whatever it is, that situation, that change, what would it really do for me? And that begins to expose that our hearts are not resting in God. Okay? Um, Here's an illustration I'm I'm using with some fear and trepidation. Does anyone out there seem Breaking Bad? Raise your hand just so I can tell if I should say anything about this or not. Okay, children do not watch it. My children have not seen it. Walter White is diagnosed with cancer, episode one. He has no money, no retirement, and he wants to leave something for his family, right? Yes. This is quiet time, Matthew. It's quiet time. Yes, it's the, it's the one about methamphetamines. Uh, go look that up. I didn't pay attention to that part of the show. Um, and so the entire series is his... One thing you kind of kept crediting him with, he gets worse and worse. The term Breaking Bad means like he went off the deep end. That's a southern term. I've never heard it, but that's what it means. Well, by the middle to the end of the show, he has become rotten. And this isn't giving anything away. It ended in 2012. You're past your statute of limitations, so here we go. And toward the end, uh, he's become not just the hero. He's the anti-hero, maybe. I've talked to Doug about this terminology. Someone else used that term. Um, we've talked about, yeah. Maybe he's the anti-hero, but really he becomes, I believe they're going for this, the bad guy. Like, he's not really an anti-hero. You really hate him now. I mean, he's bad. But yet, what he, one little thing he has is, he did have cancer, and he does have cancer, and he's doing all this for his family. That, that's the one thing he's got, right? He's really trying to provide as crazy as he became for his family. And then there's this scene, I don't remember if it's the last episode or the second to the last episode, where he's talking to Skylar, his estranged wife, who hates him and is fearful of him, and he's about to launch into the whole, I did this for you. She stops him. If you have to, if I hear you say one more time that you did all this, became a, basically the biggest meth dealer ever, and, and killed people and all the horrible stuff you did for our family, I'm going to throw up. And he says, "No, I did it for me." And that was a pretty shocking revelation. He could see for the first time none of this lifestyle had anything to do with the reasons he thought it was for. And I would say that is a perfect picture of envy. That we think that we are, you know, when we find ourselves envious of things, I think we anesthetize ourselves from the guilt by saying, but 
I'm doing it for good reason. I'm doing this for the family, for my career, for whatever. Right? I want to be a good citizen. Maybe I can give back to the church, etc. In the end, what we're really doing is for ourselves. And that is the delusion that we are under when we think we're not doing it for ourselves. So when you become aware of your brutishness, you are on the right path. All right. You good? All right. So what's the good news? What's the cure for envy? Um, this is where I think the psalm just explodes for me. Is in verse 23. Does everyone have your Bible handy? If you look at the ESV, I'm not sure every uh, translation uses the word, but it's my favorite word maybe in the entire psalm. Nevertheless. That wasn't even in your song. You need to add that to the song. Nevertheless. Why is that important? I'll come back to that in a second. I want to turn our attention now to the very first verse. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What is the problem with that language? What do we do as people who don't believe God loves us? Our default is to think we are not lovable. As we hear that and go, aha, I'm not pure in heart. So maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm the arrogant, I'm the wicked. Well, let's unpack that word pure in heart. It's not suggesting perfect in heart. It's simply suggesting in the Old Testament, the use of that terminology is you actually have a relationship with your father, Yahweh. Right? And in the Old Testament, how was that relationship carried out? Through the sacrificial system, right? Through the purification, right? Well, what happens is Jesus comes, right? And we, as Christians, we've received him into our lives, and he purifies us. But that doesn't mean that we have no sin. It means that we actually have the Spirit, that we're actually Christians. And so what you find that I find encouraging is Asaph says, but, but as for me, he doesn't say I was gone. But as for me, I, had, I wasn't pure in heart. But as for me, I lost my salvation. He doesn't say that. He just says, I almost slipped. I stumbled. And what you find is that as Christians, we can have seasons where we turn our backs on God and act as though we're not Christians. And in some ways, that's the default of your flesh. That's what you do daily. And that's not to be applauded, and that's not to be encouraged. Romans 6, so shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. But you must recognize the fact that it's true of you. And, and, and let that reality, rather than drive you away from it, drive you to the Lord. Because he says, nevertheless, the next word, I am continually with you. That is the power of the psalm. Not, nevertheless, I will return to you. Nevertheless, if I get my act together, we might have a thing again. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me, present tense, with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me in glory. That is the Gospel message. That even as sinners, Christ pursued you in your salvation, and even as sinners, Christ holds you in your sanctification and your growth. And so the heart then of sanctification is we want the fruit of not envying, no doubt about it. But the heart of sanctification is recognizing our brutishness, our ignorance, our resistance to the Father in confessing that. And this psalm 
is a perfect example of a meditation that we should all engage in. When we read this psalm of Asaph, why don't we think to our, maybe we should journal our sin? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't that be kind of crazy? What are you afraid of? People will find it, right? So learn shorthand. But journal, take a sin pattern you struggle with and be honest before the Lord. Here it is. And what I love about this psalm, again, going back to the... He, he doesn't hide the fact that he's angry at the area. His envy includes anger and bitterness and frustration, but he's honest with his, his emotions. But he's also confessing his sin. Right? And he says, I am brutish like a beast before you, but nevertheless I am continually with you. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will see, receive me in glory. So, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is important. This is hard. But this is important. I'm about to say something that if, you, if it's not true of you, you need to ask if you know Jesus. Have you ever in your life come to a place, or are you now at a place where you could say what he says in verse 25? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Have you ever come to a place where that was true? It needs to be true of you. It needs to be something you can say. You may not always say it. You may not live it all the time. But if we have Christ, and we are confessing our sin, certainly part of our repentance will be to say, I have nothing in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Right? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Have you ever had that time? I'm not trying to um, trick you guys. This is not a trick, aha, where's the gospel? That is the gospel. When we come face to face with Christ, when we see Him clearly, when we receive Him into our lives because He pursued us, we will not think we need Christ plus something else to complete us. He will be everything. And so what we do in repentance is we go back there in confidence because He is continually with us, because He is holding us by our right hand, because He is everything. We can actually go to Him in prayer and say, let me be honest, I have not been feeling this way, Jesus. I have been feeling like I needed this, this, or that, and we get specific, which I'm not going to do before you right now, with my sin. Um, and then we confess the brutishness of it. And we ask the Spirit to open our eyes to show us the distortion. Help us to see the futility in our thinking, that we need these things. And we pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the reality of what we have in the Gospel. And where do we see that in the New Testament? Psalm or a Psalm. Philippians 3, Paul, right? He talks about the look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he goes on and explains all the religious things he had. And he says, But that's all rubbish. Right? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own. That's critical. 
He's not now finding this new idea, his righteousness. He's not now saying, now that I can do this, I have righteousness in it. Where does his righteousness come from? My righteousness does not come from law or being able to keep any rules or anything like that, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And then in the next verse, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on. That is the Gospel. Jesus Christ has come into your life and He says, I love you. And if you've received Him, you are in union with Christ and now you are free. And the first thing you do with that freedom is confess the envy. Confess the stuff you're looking to. What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are we afraid of if we confess the things we struggle with wanting? That God won't be good? That maybe what He gives us is second best? Right? Well, that's the Gospel. Not that we get second best, but that we get the only thing that is worth having, which is Jesus. What do you make of knowing the Creator of the universe? That He would enter your soul. That we, we take this meal which we are about to celebrate together, showing that God and man have become one in Christ, that we are in union with Him. He's not just an idea. He's not just a set of principles we follow, but he is, we are now a new creation in Him. And it's completely free. Only it cost Him His life. That is the Gospel. And my prayer for my life and for yours is we would be so overjoyed by the lengths he has gone to to pursue us, that we would love to confess. And in part of that confession of the things we envy and the things we struggle with is not, we don't wait until we're better, right? We don't tarry until we have it figured out. We don't wait to confess until we think we have our exit strategy. We actually confess saying, I have no idea how to get out of this. I long for these things. I'm struggling with these things. Will you show me the way out through your gospel? And he will provide.